I am so excited to be speaking to the author of a brand new book by Lexham, The Heart of a Preacher. Thank you for joining us, Rick Reed. David, it's a delight to meet you and to be with you today. Oh, thank you so much, Rick. Before we get started, just tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm a, an American living in Canada. We uh, pastored in uh, California, and about 20-plus years ago, I came with my family to Ottawa, Canada, the capital city, oh, yeah. where yeah. I pastored for 15 years. The last seven years, I've been serving as the president of a college and seminary named Heritage College and Seminary near Toronto, yeah. and I also have the joy of teaching homiletics there. Ah, amazing. But before you tell us about your new book, The Heart of a Preacher, I've got to tell you, Rick, I have really enjoyed reading this. I've, I've read a lot of books on preaching before, but this book is just so full of wisdom and it's such an encouragement. So congratulations on that and thank you so much. Ah, thank you. So tell us about your new book and how did you come to write it? Well, as I mentioned, David, I have the joy and privilege of teaching young preachers. And I realized that you know, in addition to teaching them skills for preaching, there was another need that was often perhaps not as visible or as apparent in the homiletics classroom, but that was the need to form their hearts, yeah. to allow their hearts to grow to the place where they could be useful to the Lord as preachers of his word. The book opens with the statement, preaching is hard work, which will it will surprise a lot of people because everyone knows that a pastor <laughs> only works one day a week. <laughs> All jokes aside, what was you surprised by how much work actually goes into being a preacher? Well, on one level, yes, but when I was in seminary a number of years ago, I went to a school that was known for training expositors, yeah. and so they taught us right off the bat. They disabused us of any notion that this was going to be quick and easy, that <laughs> there was going to be rigor and work. And yeah. so I think for many years I've known that it's going to take a lot of work, the, the rigor to exegete a text faithfully, the time needed to discern in the main message of a text, the uh, work that you put in, the skill you put in to craft an outline, and then the passion and energy to deliver. I knew all of that was hard work. Here's the surprise, though, David. I think I didn't realize until later that the hardest work a preacher has to do is really the heart work mm. that he has to do. Mm. You talk about the unseen battles of a preacher's heart. What are these, Rick? Yeah, well, I, I became a pastor. I finished my seminary training, became a, a solo pastor, and uh, I I started to say, I want to preach the word faithfully, like your ministry. I believed in the exposition of Scripture as the vital keystone of a, of a pastoral ministry. So I would, uh, I would go at it, but then I found all these challenges came up. For example, in the midst of a busy pastorate, I could have the challenge to actually prioritize and protect the time needed to dig into the Scripture and prepare a sermon. Or... Maybe I would come to a passage, and the, the test or the challenge was, you know, I read a passage, and I thought, oh, I know this passage. Yeah. So rather than digging in deeply, yeah. the challenge was, would I just skim the surface yeah. and, you know, pick, pick out a theme and run with that, rather than really doing the diligence to understand the flow of thought. Or here was another challenge. On Sundays when the sermon went well, I felt grateful and relieved and then some niggling thoughts of pride would start to creep in. And I didn't, I didn't want those, yeah. but I would start to fight a battle inside myself. 
or on days when the sermon fell flat, at least it seemed to feel flat, I felt flattened. I would go home and I would feel empty inside. And I thought, what do I do with that? And then I would go to pastor's conferences or gathering with my friends, and I'd be delighted to see them. But then I would hear of another ministry that was flourishing, and I would suddenly fight some competitive urges, some comparison. Like, who do you even talk to about these things? Mm -hmm. Those are some of the unseen battles, I think, that preachers face. One of the things I love about your book, Rick, is you've stripped out every single one of those components and you've broken it down, haven't you, with some useful application as well which is you know so so helpful we, we live in an age yeah. where not only do we have access to listening to the best preachers and sermons from across the world online so do our congregations how has this affected <laughs> preachers ambition and the congregation's expectation as well as to what they hear on a sunday well you are right david we can listen to preachers from around the world and we can hear those who god has used in significant ways to have a wide reach and so can the members of our congregations. Yeah, I kind of see it as a, a mixed blessing. Uh, on one level, it's a blessing because our people are able to be fed not only by us, but by others who are skilled, gifted, and committed to Scripture. Mm. So that's, that's a huge blessing. The downside, perhaps, is that we feel sometimes compared in an unflattering way to those who are exceptionally gifted and skilled. And so we can kind of wrestle with, well, what is my place? I, I write in the book about, you know, here I, I've had it happen to me. You finish preaching a message. You've given, your, let's say it's uh, the prodigal son. Mm. You've just given your best, you know, effort at preaching Luke 15. Yeah. And as soon as you finish, <laughs> some well-meaning parishioner rushes up and says, Pastor, have you heard Tim Keller's message on <laughs> on this passage? It's amazing. I'll send you the link. <laughs> yeah. And it, and he doesn't mention anything about what you just said. And it's easy to feel like, well, okay, well, why don't you see if Tim Keller will come visit you in the hospital when you're sick, you know? <laughs> We've, you mentioned about having access to some of the, the best expositors. One of the, you said it was a mixed blessing. One of the downsides of obviously the internet is our congregations also having access to false teachers and online as yes. well. How, how do you manage that from the pulpit? Yeah, that's a great question, David. Well, you know, Ephesians 4, where it says in verse 11 that he gave some to be apostles and some to be prophets and some evangelists and some as pastors and teachers, it says that their role is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And then mm -hmm. verse 13 says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith. And verse 14 says, so that we will no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Yeah. So what I see is that the faithful teaching, week in, week out, year in, year out, the faithful teaching of God's Word is actually the best prescription and protection because what it does is it grows people up in the faith, it moves them towards maturity, and then they're less vulnerable to those, as you said, those spurious winds of doctrine that they will hear. Yeah. either on the internet or through a friend or wherever yeah a challenge preachers face is to ask ourselves is this sermon god honoring or self-promoting how do you catch that rick yeah that's a that's a good one that deals with motives doesn't it mm. um because you can preach the same sermon for different reasons paul mm. talks in uh in galatians about some who proclaim the gospel out of selfish ambition so it sounds like he was saying they're actually preaching the gospel. 
because mm-hmm. he says, I rejoice in that, but their motives were bad. Mm-hmm. So how do I know as a preacher if my own motives are God-honoring or self-promoting? And a verse that's been helpful to me is actually in 1 Corinthians 4, where Paul talks about how people should see him. And he says, you know, we're not a celebrity, we're stewards and we're servants. But then he says this, he says, it matters very little to me what you think of me. And he says, for my heart's clean. I, I, I don't even judge myself fully, he says. I'm not aware of anything wrong in my heart, but the Lord tests my motives. Mm. And so what I, I see Paul saying is this, I have to test my heart, but I can't fully trust my own tests. Yeah, yeah. I can be self-deceived. Yeah. So I think the only way you and I can handle that as preachers is we have to keep bringing our hearts into the light of God's presence and say, Lord, search me, know my heart, yeah. uh, show me. I think this side of heaven will probably always have some impure motives mixed in with our God-honoring motives. Mm. The, the flesh still kind of bubbles out, right? Yeah. But we have to say, Lord, please, Help me today, I proclaim. Let my focus be on Jesus. I used to pray as I would step up. I'd say, Lord, let the new Rick Reed show up today, the one who's secure in you, who doesn't need to prove anything, who's there because he loves the word, who's there because you've made him new in Christ. Let that Rick Reed preach today, not the one who's insecure, who needs to somehow prop up his own ego. Yeah. And I think by if we just stay true in the Lord's presence, he graciously helps us and grows us. Yeah, that's so good. I've read another really good book recently. Um, I can't remember the author. Uh, some Welch. Um, when when people are big and God is small. Have you read God that before, small. Rick? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's an excellent book as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, I've been arrested by the title. I, I, I don't know that I've read it cover to cover, but what a great concept that Welch has. When people are big and God is small. I think the opposite is you as you're implying, is that when God is big yeah. and people are small, I'm, I'm much more safe to say I'm going to get up and preach about God yeah. and not about me. Absolutely. Yeah, great stuff. Really good. You write about Paul being a role model for not boasting of ministry influence. Tell us about that, Rick. Yeah, I was arrested by uh, Galatians chapter 6 where Paul says, you know, far be it for me to boast except in the cross of Christ. And in the context there, he's talking about some uh, false teachers, some Judaizers who had come into Galatia and were trying to get the new believers, the Gentile converts, to be circumcised and follow the law of Moses. Mm-hmm. And Paul uses a interesting phrase there. He says, they do this so they can boast in your flesh. And I, as I thought about that, I think what Paul is saying is they're, they're wanting you to be circumcised, to join their team, so they can boast in their ministry impact and influence, right? Like, hey, you're followers of, yeah, you're, you're going with my ministry. Yeah. And then Paul seems to say, look, the only thing I'm boasting about is in the cross of Christ. Yeah. And from what we know about Paul, even from Galatians 1, he was a naturally ambitious man. You know, in chapter 1, he says, I was advancing ahead of all my colleagues, right? right? I, was, yeah. I was like the top of the list. But then he said, when I came to know Christ, it killed it killed my urge to boast in those things, mm. in my influence, in my impact. And now I boast in what God has done in Christ for me. Yeah. So for me, I, I, I have had to keep coming back to saying, Lord, keep my heart near the cross. Keep my heart focused on what Jesus did, and then I will boast in him. Yeah, 
And I will, you know, the, the hymn we sing, I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his mm. death and resurrection. Mm. And that's, that should be the theme of our preaching. We live in an age where there's so many visual indicators as to how fellow pastors may be doing. You know, you think about social media followers or how many published articles they may have had. It's easy to fall into a trap of feeling insignificant. Tell us about that, yeah. Rick, and also any personal reflections you might have. Wow, that's a really good question, David. I, I think back a number of years ago when I when I had my first uh, position as a solo pastor, I was in a small California town in a church that was tucked away, uh, kind of off the mainstream, a smaller congregation. Yeah. And I had had, you know, in seminary, kind of big dreams that God was going to let me be part of changing the world, you know, and, yeah. and now here I am pastoring a small group of folks in a little place that's kind of off the mainstream. Yeah. And, I, and I, I had to wrestle with this sense of, am I significant? Uh, what is that? And there was a verse that the Lord used at that time in my life that has become a very, very dear verse to me. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, where Paul is saying all these things that are true about him, uh, where he's saying, you know, we're considered as imposters, but we're true. We're, we're poor, but we make many others rich. And then he adds this little phrase. He says, were unknown and yet well-known. Mm. And I, I realized that I think what Paul is saying there is that in the larger scheme of the Roman Empire, he was an unknown. Christianity was a small movement. He was largely overlooked. He had left the uh, notoriety and fame and uh, position that he had had in Judaism. And now in one sense, he was an unknown. But he says, though I may be an unknown, I'm well-known. And I think there he's saying, I'm well known to the only one who really matters. Yeah. I'm well known to Je- I'm well known to Jesus. Yeah. And the Lord used that verse as I pastored in this town to just help me to say, Lord, may I, wherever I am, mm. if you put me on the outskirts of obscurity, may mm. I serve you faithfully and may I be well known to Jesus. And may I and may I leave my sense of my place in the world, may I leave that with you. And may I just seek to be faithful to you. And and the Lord did some good work in my life um, and, and gave me a sense of satisfaction and joy in saying, I want to just be where the Lord places me and I want to serve him. Yeah. And I, I think that helped me wrestle through some of those, those matters. You speak about the risk of becoming lazy and how that can be masked by being really <laughs> busy. I found that so, so, so good. T- tell us a little bit about that, Rick. Yeah, I think you can be busy lazy, right? Yeah. It's it's it seems like a paradox, but <laughs> I can I can be doing lots of things. I can have lots of leaves, but not necessarily lots of fruit. Yeah. So um as I thought about it as a preacher, I thought of at least five ways I can be lazy busy. Uh I wrote down here's the five, I'll just rhyme them up. I, I can be lazy busy when I scatter my sermon prep time. Yeah. When I just try to do it in bits and drabs in the cracks here and there. Mm-hmm. And second one, when I squander my sermon prep time. So I actually now am sitting down to do it, and then I distract myself through email or social media or something that's a little less rigorous, you know, reading a magazine or whatever. The third one I said was, I can start my sermon prep time too late. So that's kind of like, you know, waiting to the 11th hour to really get serious. Uh, I had a friend who once I talked about Saturday night specials, you know, that you 
put together on Saturday night. He said, you know what I found? Saturday night specials aren't usually all that special. Yeah. They just don't, they don't, they don't <laughs> have so time true. to slow cook. They yeah. don't have time to simmer and boil. And then, by the way, here is a helpful thing that had, I took a class one time with Haddon Robinson on preaching, and he said something that helped me. I was a young pastor. He said, if you will, if you will look ahead 10 days, so now let's say it's a, a Wednesday or Thursday, mm. and he says, if you'll look ahead to the passage you're going to preach in 10 or 11 days, so not this Sunday, but a week Sunday. Yeah. And he said, if on that Wednesday or Thursday, I know you're still getting ready for this Sunday, but if you will carve out one hour, he said, and just do exegetical digging, exegetical spade work in the passage that you'll preach in 10 days, he says, then you put it away and you go back to working, finishing up for this week. He says, what will happen is that your mind will be working on in the background, yeah. like a computer that has a program open, but it's not on the main screen. It's, it'll be working on that passage. And when you come to it next week in earnest, you'll find that it feels much more familiar. So I found that you can start sermon prep time earlier rather than later. And it's uh, very helpful. My fourth one was skimming the surface of a passage, you know, and yeah. that's just you come to a passage and you're rushed. I'll be lazy, busy in that. I'll just pick out something. Oh, here's a theme. I'll run with this yeah. rather than saying, do I understand the author's flow of thought and what the main message is? And then the finally one was serving up leftovers. After you've been at a, a ministry for a long time, you do have you do have an arsenal of old sermons, right? Yeah. And, and I'm of the persuasion that it's not wrong to go back and preach a message again but I think it needs to be looked at from top to bottom again, and uh, you know maybe the structure will stay similar, but the Lord will give you fresh insights, uh, new illustrations, uh, perhaps a little new direction, rather than just kind of saying, I'll do the easy route and repeat something. Yeah. So there's, there's ways I can be busy, but still kind of, to be honest, be a bit lazy. Yeah, that's so good. And I think we live in an age now as well, don't we, where there's so many distractions. I mean, you know, you've almost got to be so um, disciplined in turning off your phone, uh, you know, <laughs> putting down the blinds because otherwise, you know, you, you're just going to open up your Bible and there's going to be a million notifications come through on your phone and everything's just pulling yes. you away, right? Yes, I, I totally agree with you. That's, yeah. I think that's the, some of the, uh, you know, where Paul says about young men in, in Titus, when he says Titus, Teach the young men to be self-controlled. Yeah. I thought, you know, he has a whole list for teach the older men. He gives them a whole list of things. Teach the older women a whole list. Yeah. Teach the younger women a whole list. And he goes, with the young guys, just work on self-control. Because <laughs> if you get that one, yeah. that's like the mother load. That will help them in every area. Yeah. And we need that as preachers. Yeah, that's so good. You write about the importance of preaching in both truth and grace. And we can have a tendency to be one or the other. Tell us a little bit about that, Rick. Yeah, I realized, uh, David, I don't know, uh, you know, how many languages you speak. I know in, in, in Canada here, I'm around people that speak multiple languages, yeah. and I just admire them. Yeah, so, <laughs> so I'm monolingual as a speaker, but I realized I had to become bilingual as a preacher. Yeah. And that meant I needed to speak both grace and truth, uh, speaking the truth in love. Or it says in John 1, Jesus was full of grace and truth. And what I realized and what I've learned as I teach preachers is that most of us have a mother tongue in either grace or truth. Mm -hmm. Some people are great truth tellers, right? When they come to a passage, they just see all the things that they're going to go, oh, they need to hear this. I'm going to really get them with this. Yeah. And they just focus in on 
areas of sin and commitment and, and they're strong in that. Other people their mother tongue, their their default dialect is grace. And they come to the same passage and they pick out all the bits that would be encouraging, comforting, uh, you know, heartening. And yet, if we're going to be faithful to the scripture, we have to be able to preach both grace and truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have to, um, I like to say, we not only need to be true to the message of the text, but we have to be true to the mood of the text. So that if I preach... If I preach Psalm 23 and people leave feeling beat up, I've probably not been true to that text, yeah, right? Yeah. The Lord is my shepherd. Yeah. Or if on the converse, if I preach if I preach James chapter 4, you adulterous and adulterers, and everyone walks out going, that was so encouraging. That was <laughs> such a uplift. I probably haven't <laughs> brought forth the force of that text. Yeah. And I realized that my default tongue was more on the grace side. So I had to grow and stretch to be able to also bring it with more force the truth of Scripture as well. So that's what I mean by grace and truth. That's really good. So what, what did you practically do? What, what's the application in that, Rick? So if, if one of the listeners are aware that they, you know, that they, they're, they're um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? If they're more likely to, to be in one camp or the other. How do, yes. What are the practical steps that they can take to address that? What, what's your kind of, how, do you, how do you coach somebody in that? Well, I think one thing is that good exegesis will help us. Yeah. Because what good exegesis does is it gets us down to not just the meaning of the text, but also the mood of the text. So when you're going through a text and you're studying it, you go, you know, Paul is really exercised here. He is coming on strong. Then that should be a cue to me. That that's the feel of the sermon. Yeah. I don't get to pick the mood of the t- a sermon. Yeah. The scripture does. Yeah, yeah. A second thing is, I think you can do is you and I can listen to people who are strong in the language we're weak in. Mm. So I began to listen to some preachers who who were stronger at, uh, in truth telling, and while I couldn't clone them, because then it would be inauthentic, I I could learn from them. I could see some of the things that they did well. And uh, so I, you know, I began to try to say, Lord, help me to stretch and grow. And then, and here's the thing I learned it even when I think I'm going strong on truth, I'm probably still never going to lose my mother tongue, you know, yeah, so yeah. I'm, um, I'm still going to be, I'm still going to be who I am, but I can grow in becoming better at the full range of preaching. Yeah, that's really good. In this chapter, you, you told a brilliant illustration about a time that you went to Kenya. Can you just tell us about that now, Rick? Oh, yeah, it was a bit embarrassing there, David. I, <laughs> I you know, as I said, I'm, I'm a little bit more on the grace side and, yeah. uh, you know, I, that's just what comes out. So I was in Kenya and we went to a little church where I was going to preach. And this was a, a church that was fired up. They had the sound system was set on stun. I mean, it was like so loud, it was distorting. And the pastor got up and he was shouting it out and it was high energy, high octane. So right before I get up to preach, my wife leans over to me and goes, you got to bring it today. (laughs) And so, uh, you know, I thought, okay, when in Rome, you know, do as the Romans. So I got up there and I preached with all the fervor and all the force and all the truth telling I could possibly do. Yeah. So I get down and I finish, and the pastor gets up to close the service, and he, and no joke, he says, um, he says the Bible tells us that God sometimes speaks in the fire and in the wind, 
and in the earthquake, and sometimes he speaks in the still, small whisper. Today, we have heard that still, small whisper. And I was going, no, 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 that was my thunder man. And I realized that even when I think I'm thundering, even when I'm going there, I'm still kind of who I am, but I can yeah. grow in that. So. I, I love that. So good. So good. A lot of preachers get a lot of comfort from taking uh, lots of notes into the pulpit um, out of fear, really. Um, and it can be hard to move away from this. Talk about how you teach this transition and also about your own growth in this area, Rick. Yeah. Um, you know, most of us, as especially expositor, David, and I, I applaud the emphasis that we are trying to not just pre- preach ourselves or our own thoughts, but we are trying to bring out the message of the text. Yeah. And, and because of that, we take that very seriously. One of the <clears throat> challenges that can come is we do all this work exegetical. We, we manuscript a message, and we want to get it right. We don't want to get it kind of half right. We want to get it right. So we bring our notes into the text, and sometimes we stay rather tied to our, to our notes. Mm. The downside of that is that it, it blunts the force of our impact when it comes to connecting with our hearers because we're looking down rather than looking them in the eyes. So I think that we need to push ourselves to get free from our notes. Well, how do you do that and still be true to what you've studied? I teach our young preachers two things that can help us because some guys say, I just can't do that. I don't have a good memory. I'm going to, I'm going to end up looking foolish. I'm going to mess it up. How could I ever do this? And I said, well, here's two things that can help. Number one, work on internalizing your notes, not memorizing your notes. And the difference, internalizing means I try to be able to paraphrase myself rather than say it word for word. Yeah. Um, so more thought for thought. And if, and if you can internalize the structure of your sermon and, uh, and you can say, well, I know where it's going. I don't worry about getting every single word perfect, but I do I try to internalize what what the sermon is saying so internalize rather than memorize that frees us up second thing is prioritize what you internalize so rather than going from full notes to like not using them at all start off by internalizing what what i think is the most helpful is internalize the overall structure of your sermon Mm -hmm. think of your sermon as think of your sermon notes as the blueprint of your house most of us could walk into our apartment or our house, and we know the, 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 the blueprint. You know, you walk in, there's the entryway, and then it leads into a little living room, and off that is the kitchen, and off that is the stairway, or whatever it is. We could do that. If you and I can get to the place where you can walk yourself through the sermon. Okay, I start with this introduction, and then we turn to the passage, and then I read, and my first point is this. And then I, then I illustrate it by this. If you can do that, you, you start to feel confident, like I know where I'm going next. So you internalize the, you, you prioritize to internalize the structure of your sermon. And then you pick off parts. You say, okay, I'm going to internalize the intro and the conclusion. Mm-hmm. So you work on saying, I want to get free from my notes in the intro so that when I start, I can make that connection with my hearers. I can look them in the eye. I can smile at them. I can, I can be present with them in that way. And then when you get comfortable with that, you take another section. Maybe you internalize some of the illustrations. Or, and in time, you find that you get freer and freer from your notes. Somebody said, memory is like a trusted friend. 
the more you trust it, the more reliable it proves. And I think a lot of us could do this far more than we think we can. Yeah. The human side of pastoral ministry means that there's going to be some Sundays where, you know, the preacher's going to have to stand up there and they're just not going to feel, feel it at all. Um, you know, yeah. whether it be, we can, we, we know those of us that, are, you know, have families before Sunday, that is often the time when the kids would be unreasonable yeah. for no reason. <laughs> <laughs> How... How do you um, coach somebody, and what what sort of wisdom do you have for uh, you know a preacher that's standing there about to about to preach and they're just not feeling it at all, and they you know almost feel like an imposter, Rick? Yeah, I remember one Sunday in particular, David. I I had just our church was going through some turbulence, mm. and there had been some difficult conversations on a leadership level, and I'd had some struggles in our home with uh, some of our kids and my wife and I weren't seeing eye to eye and how to deal with it yeah. and Sunday comes whether you're ready or not right yeah, and, yeah. and I remember that Sunday sitting on the front pew as the uh, as the congregation was singing and the worship team was leading and I remember sitting there and this is very rare for me but I was thinking Lord I don't even want to be here yeah. I got nothing today yeah. now I prepared a sermon but I didn't feel it at all I didn't. I wasn't excited to preach, and I I felt, as you said, like a bit like an imposter, a poser. Mm. What do you do? Well, in in First Corinthians chapter two, and in First Thessalonians chapter two, Paul talks about going into Corinth and Thessalonica, and preaching when he was beat up. Yeah. He talks about coming with fear and trembling and having been mistreated in Philippi. And he still said, we had the boldness in our God to proclaim to you the gospel. And I think on those Sundays, as we sit there thinking, Lord, I got nothing. I think what we have to do is just cry out to him and say, Lord, you know me. I got nothing. I don't want to be an imposter. Yeah. I, I want to be right. I, this, this is killing me that I'm having turmoil with leaders. This is killing me that my family is going through struggles. So I pour out my heart silently. And then I preach the gospel to myself. I say, Lord, I'm, I'm going to step up and preach, not because I'm worthy, but because you're worthy. I, I've confessed sin. I'm not trying to hide sin. I, I'm right with you, but I'm just flattened today. And then you get up and you preach. I've realized that preaching in distress is not the same thing as preaching in disguise. Mm -hmm. You can be in distress in fact, Paul says, I spoke in spite of turbulent emotions. So on that Sunday, I walked up to the platform, and I began to preach my message. And you know, David, I remember this. It was as I preached to them, it was like God allowed the truth that I was proclaiming to hit me. And by the time I finished the sermon, my own heart was buoyed up. My yeah. own spirit was lifted up. I still had those problems to go deal with, but God had strengthened my soul as a preacher and he, I trust he'd even use that in others' lives as well. Mm. So sometimes we're just faithful. We show up. We try to be honest with God. And then we proclaim his word. Yeah. And I, I think he's faithful and gracious to us in the midst of all this. Yeah. Something that can be hurtful is criticism. But we also know that feedback is so important in growth. Uh, critics can come in different forms. Tell us a bit about that and how to think biblically and respond in. Yeah, you're right. They do come in different forms. <laughs> I, I wrote a little chapter on this in the book, and I identify what I called four different kinds of critics. I mean, we know we have to be open to critics. Proverbs says, he who hates reproof is stupid. Yeah. So I can't just block them out. So 
But I, I found it helpful to identify different kinds of critics and respond appropriately. So here's the four. I said some critics are anonymous. They're the ones that write the unsigned note and slide it in the offering plate. And I think when someone is not willing to own their criticism, I don't feel obligated that I have to read it or you know allow it to if, if they're just writing some scorching comment yeah. that I have to be scorched by it. Yeah. So I, I feel like either I give it to someone I trust and say, could you read this and you know distill any if there's some truth in it, tell me. But why should I allow the enemy to fire darts from the shadow? Mm. Um, so that's anonymous. Second kind of critic that we have are what I call analysts. Analysts are the ones that rush up and they want to get things right. They have a high sense of, you know, on the details. So perhaps they rush up <laughs> to you and say, Pastor, Pastor, you said that um, Sarah was 99 when she had Isaac. She was 90. Yeah. Like they, they're really big on the little things. Yeah. And what I found is that analysts typically don't mean to be hurtful. They just are picky about particulars, and their timing is sometimes tactless. You know, <laughs> so with most analysts, the, the, if they don't, if it's just occasional, you just say, "Oh, thank you for bringing that up. I appreciate it. you got the, you just helped the pastor. That's right. She was ninety, not ninety-nine. Yeah. If yeah. they do it over and over and over again, then I think you have to set some gracious boundaries. Yeah. And yeah. and just help the person not be that way. So you got anonymous. You got analysts. Third one I had was antagonists. And antagonists are people that, for some reason, can't see anything good in you. And uh, you know, if they take notes during your your sermon, it's just to get ammunition to fire back at you. You know, they're just they're just people that, for whatever reason, are disgruntled and offside. Yeah. And so they're critical, yeah. and they can be really hurtful. They can break your heart. They can boil your blood. You know. So with them, I think that with them, I say, in dealing with antagonists, don't go alone. Uh, the Bible has built in a plurality of leadership. I think that's why we have elders. And I would say you've got to go and get help. Uh, you may need to be corrected some yourself, but you also need to be protected. Mm. You know, I used to tell the elders at our church, I need, I need from you, I need direction. I need correction but I also need protection. Mm. And I think as we go to the elders and we're part of that team, as we, as we lean on them, I think God allows them to, to defend us in ways that we can't even defend ourselves. Mm. And then the fourth kind of critic is one we often don't think about, but it's the critic that I call an ally. Uh, this is in the vein of Proverbs chapter 26, verse 7, that says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, Right. Or somebody once said, a friend is someone who stabs you in the front. Yeah, we yeah. need those kinds of critics too, yeah, right? Yeah. And I, I remember when I was a young pastor, uh, I was probably in my 30s, God had put an older, wise man on our elder board. He had been a principal of a school, and he, he was just a godly, wise man, and he was an ally. And I remember going to him, his name was Bob, and I said, Bob, I just want you to know, whenever you see anything in my life or ministry that could be hurtful to the Lord's work, would you please tell me? You have you have open access. Because I knew that even if he said something that was that hurt me, mm -hmm. he would never intend to be hurtful. Yeah. And and he was he was a gift from God for as a young pastor. He would take me aside once in a while and say, Pastor, here's something you might want to know. 
And I think an ally is a huge, a great gift. By yeah. the way, if you're married, your wife should be your closest ally. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Another heart test for a preacher is looking out at the congregation to see a lack of engagement or, or even unhappy faces. Now, Rick, I know you've probably never experienced this before yourself firsthand. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> what, theoretically, what? David, I could just theoretically talk about this. <laughs> yeah. how, how do you... Um, teach your students in terms of not letting it affect them (laughs) well you know when it comes to i i I would distinguish between those who are dozing sleepy and those who are disgruntled you know both can distract you the dozing one is the guy that's you know his eyes are closed his mouth is open and he's just (laughs) snoring away and one thing that helps me with that is to preach with compassion because you and I don't know the backstory for all the people that are sitting there. And for some folks, just to show up on Sunday morning is a heroic act. Yeah. You know, with all they've gone through, maybe they've just gone through, you know, family issues, work issues, and they show up in church, they sit down, and sleep overcomes them. Kind of like it did the disciples when they went to the Garden of Gethsemane. Mm. And I think there, when we see sleepy people, Generally, we just need to have compassion to say, Lord, thank you, bless them. But I think the second thing we can do with those who are sleepy is we can preach with passion, not just compassion, but passion. In fact, if I got one or two dozers out there, that's that's one thing. But if the whole congregation is dozing, yeah. that's probably on me as yeah. a preacher. Yeah. So it may mean I just am, am too uh, monochromatic. I'm not giving this thing with the passion that it deserves. So... I think dozing, we preach with compassion and passion. With the disgruntled, you know, when you when you preach and there is someone seated there with their arms crossed and a scowl on their face, yeah, that's really can throw you as a preacher. Yeah, uh, I remember I remember as a young pastor, a lady who would sit there with that scowl on her face, never make eye contact with me, look down, arms crossed, you know, and I just thought she is just unhappy. Yeah, and. So I would try when I preach not to focus on her. I would, you know, just not you not fixate on that because that could throw you off. And I realize there's a lot of other people here who want to hear God's word. And, but the other thing that helped me was to realize Second Timothy chapter 2, Paul talks to young Timothy and he says, you know, um, here's how you handle those who are opponents. You've got to you got to winsomely present the truth. He says you have to teach, but you, you have to be not quarrelsome but you don't back away from presenting the truth yeah so what i tried to do with those people is i still said lord help me to love them even if right now they don't love me yeah i would try when i saw them after the service maybe in the lobby or in the parking lot i would try to smile to to say hello Uh, uh the line that i've used over and over is i want to be able to look everyone in the eye even if i don't see eye to eye with everyone yeah So, you know, Paul says, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with all people. So I would try to pray till my heart got to the place that said, look, if there's a barrier between us, it's not because I am personally have animosity towards you. We may disagree on an issue, but I still love you. So I'm going to preach the word with a clear conscience and try to be that winsome, gracious pastor at all times. So that that helped me with some with the disgruntled. It still was hard, still was unsettling, but the Lord gave grace. Yeah, that's really good. I, I guess from a human point of view as well, it's to not fall into that trap of suddenly think, well, you know, I've got to make this a lot more entertaining and then start, 
you know diluting you know the truth of the word and 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 it becoming a lot more about entertainment and tickling people's ears no as well right i agree no i agree i i don't think we i don't think you gain a long-term interest by just resorting to gimmicks yeah i think the way you gain long-term interest is by showing people in your preaching both what you say and how you say it that the scripture is the most interesting thing we could possibly look at yeah that's so good you talk a bit in your book about the importance of expository preaching and before the interview we were talking offline about our project that we've got on where we we're working with 66 pastor teachers uh, yeah. and having every verse of a bible taught on our website Rick, tell us about expository preaching and why it is so important you know david i uh, i just resonate with your heart that you know scripture is really what God has given to grow up the church by the Spirit, through the Word, He grows us up. So we need to encourage people to exposit, to expose, to bring out the meaning of the text. I, I like to tell the young preachers, hey, here's why you should be an expositor. Let me give you at least three good reasons. You'll have more authority in your sermons. If it's just you and me trying to tell people how to live, what authority do we have? Mm. But when you can say, thus saith the Lord, you're not speaking on your authority you're speaking on God's authority. I would often say at the beginning of a sermon, I would say, I want you to open your Bibles. I want you to look at it because what I'm about to say doesn't matter at all. And then I'd pause and I'd say, unless what I'm about to say matches closely with the word of God. Yeah. And then it matters supremely yeah. because it's not me saying it, it's God saying it. So when you exposit the word, when you bring out what the word says, you have more authority in your sermons you actually have, secondly, you have more nourishment for your people. Hmm. If you and I just try to feed them on the best of our little thoughts, yeah. you know, it's going to be giving them, like like Jeremiah uh, 29, the Lord says, what does straw have to do with grain? <laughs> yeah. My best ideas are like straw, yeah. you know. Yeah. God's ideas are like grain. They, yeah. They're nourishing people. Yeah. And then, actually, here's, here's the third one. It's counterintuitive, but you'll have more variety in your preaching. Yeah. Because when you allow the text to determine the sermon— you'll find that you go in places that you would not naturally go if you just follow your own kind of pattern and your own kind of thinking. So expositing in Scripture is not only uh, faithful to Scripture, it's also functionally very useful. That's so good. If you could go back in time when you first started out in ministry, uh, Rick, what would be the one piece of advice you would give to yourself? <laughs> That's a great thing. <laughs> you know, I think I would say... Trust what you've been told by those who are godly and gone before you. Trust what they said when they told you, preach the word. Trust that that indeed, you, fads will come, fads will go. But trust that those who, from scripture, from Paul, who said to Timothy, preach the word. From your preachers, from my, my father was a pastor who told me that. Trust that, that over the long haul of your ministry, you will never regret that you put your energy into preaching God's word. It's what will change and grow up people over the long haul. Yeah. So I'd say, hang in there, do that. And you'll be glad you did. That's so good. Rick, not only have you written one of my favorite books in the, you know, this year, this has been one of my favorite interviews. It's gone so fast. David, it's been a joy. I, I think we are we're an ocean apart, but our hearts are very knit together. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Do you have any further projects planned, Rick? You know, uh, my, my main focus right now is preaching the word in churches and conferences and then training up young preachers. That's really my passion is the next generation of preachers. I am doing some writing 
with my wife in the area of marriage and ministry. So we're working on a little project there. And if anybody wants to get in touch with you, Rick, have you got a website? Are you on social media at all? You know, uh, right now the easiest way is through the school website, which is Heritage College and Seminary in Cambridge, Ontario. If they, you know, search for that, uh, Heritage College and Seminary, there's a link there to the president's page and they can contact me that way. Oh, excellent. Well, we'll put a link to that in the description below as well as a, a link to buy the book as well, Rick. Rick, thank you so much for your time. I've really enjoyed it today. Thank you. God bless you, David. God bless you, Rick. Thank you.